continue um, in the book of Ephesians as we've been considering. So if you can turn to chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll read from there, but um, we'll make, obviously be making much reference as well. But um, just to refresh ourselves, we are considering, as we look at the book of Ephesians, we're looking at the analogy of sit, walk, and stand as an overarching theme that relates to the book of Ephesians itself, which consists of six chapters. The first three are doctrinal, the second three practical in their instructions. And uh, they deal with our wealth in Christ, the first half, and our walk with Christ in the second half. And so we're kind of working it through with that understanding in our minds. And so we're going to continue to look at the aspect of sitting because really these first three chapters, those doctrinal chapters there, that's what they are related to. It's not until chapter 4 that it begins to focus on the, the walk itself. So it's in that light as we move through this that, we, again, I just want to bring that to the forefront of our minds as we track through what it is that we're going to consider and it's a very interesting portion of text that we're going to look at. But we're looking at the church. The church corporately which is made up of individuals, you and I, and how we fit into that individually and also there will be another aspect or dimension that will come into focus as we look at chapter 2 in just a moment. But we've considered our spiritual possessions well, that's what we're considering, our spiritual possessions or inheritance that's in Christ Jesus that is outlined for us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and even chapter 3 as well. And so uh, and the glorious truths that are associated in the book of Ephesians are phenomenal, church. You read this and just the, the wealth that we have all that is ours as a result of the inheritance that we have received. And remember, Paul prayed that our eyes would be, and the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened, that we would, God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that we would really grasp these things. Because for the Christian, for the child of God, we can navigate uh, through uh, and, and live our Christian lives, and in a sense, we can live in spiritual poverty when we have such wealth. And so it's imperative that we have a revelation, a comprehension, an understanding uh, of these truths uh, and uh, obviously uh, applying them into our own lives as God would have it in this particular epistle. So these are some of the things that we have considered. You remember that we touched on chapter uh, 2, as well, and having been seated with Christ and having been raised with him from the dead, as we find there in Romans 6 and so forth. And then we stopped short. I think we looked at chapter 2 and we kind of touched on verse, um, verse 6 and left it there. Now, in verse 7 to 10, there is the famous scriptures that we know that, um, that uh, it is by grace through faith, not of ourselves. And so we could really zoom in on that and make, pay great attention to that, but I'm not going to do that this morning, only because um, I, I ministered specifically on those verses, I think it was some six to eight weeks ago, thereabouts, I'm not exactly sure. But it's on the website 
and um, we went and looked at that extensively, uh, you may recall. And so I don't want to track through that again this morning, um, but other than just to make note of it. But um, uh, salvation is a gift from God. And it is, uh, it is uh, given to us on the basis of His grace. And it is by grace through faith that we receive of all that God has done for us. Faith is not a work. Okay? It is, uh, it is simply a persuasion and that we uh, believe what God has done and we receive. And in doing so, uh, it is not of ourselves. Salvation is the gift of God. That's what it's talking about there. And so, again, I don't want to dwell there, but I just want to take note of that and just... Make, we don't want to ignore it because it's so glorious and it fits into the whole context of what we're looking at. But our focus this morning is going to be from verses 11 through to verse 22 of chapter 2. And it's in light of the truths that we're going to see and discover in these particular verses that are, again, so wonderful, that deal with our own relationship to Christ and other aspects that we'll identify within the text itself. But we, um, uh, we've having looked at already our condition and our position in Christ, I want us to look at our relationship to Christ as it will be outlined here in these particular verses. So let's read from verse 11 through to verse 22. The Bible says, Therefore, uh, therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle war of separation, having abolished in his flesh by the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we, ha we both have access to one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now, there's again some really wonderful and glorious truths that are being brought out here by Paul the Apostle who has a grasp of the mystery of God's will and purpose in Christ Jesus. And he is writing to make these glorious truths known to us 
and, uh, and it must be understood remembering that Paul is writing here to, to Ephesus and uh, he is writing to a Gentile church. These are Gentiles, non-Jews. And the issue that is going to surface and that he's addressing in these particular issues is one, our, as Gentiles, our relationship to Christ, but also uh, our, in Christ, our relationship to the Jew. And this is very important for us to understand in the context of God's purpose and plan. And so it must be, we must understand this. Now you might say, well then, how does this relate to sitting in Christ? Everything. And that's what I want to demonstrate to you as we, as we look at these verses. Because there is a glorious truth, there is a glorious reality that has transpired for the Christian who is a new creation in Christ Jesus, having been born again, having become partakers of the divine nature, and now how we relate to Christ and how we relate to the Jew in Christ. This is very interesting and this is what Paul is, is highlighting and our position and our relationship in this. A Gentile church... You see, it's important this morning that we as Gentiles understand our relationship to the Jew. It's extremely important, actually, because this uh, is a contentious issue in the church in terms of many aspects that relate to God's plan for the nation of Israel, for the Jews after the flesh, so to speak, and uh, the church and how it all kind of culminates and comes together. But I want to identify it and see it as it comes together in Christ first, because this is what Paul's talking about. Remember this phrase, in Christ. And so it's not only important for the Gentile to understand, like you and I, how our rela- what our relationship to the Jew is in Christ, it is also important for the Jew to understand their relationship to the Gentile in Christ as well. Because there were some issues that were existed, as Paul is highlighting here, and that's what we're going to look at and, and, and identify So look at verse 11. Having stated this glorious gospel of grace and having been saved and seated with Christ and the the wealth and the inheritance and the position that we have in him, Paul says in verse 11, Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. You see, he's wanting to talk about the glorious gospel and everything that we have become partakers of and have received in our spiritual inheritance in Christ. But he says, remember, therefore remember where you came from. And he's speaking now in the context of us being Gentiles, corporately and collectively, anyone that's not a Jew in this instance, he has in mind. He says, remember that you were once Gentiles in the flesh, Notice he speaks in the past tense. You were once Gentiles in the flesh. Does that mean we're not Gentiles anymore? Well, yes and no. Because remember, we're considering the truth and the reality of being in Christ. And so, we were once Gentiles in the flesh, but you know, the truth that we're discovering, and this is what we're talking about, is a Christian life is spiritual. And so, we are not in the flesh. In one sense now, we are in the spirit. And the position and our relationship to Christ and the Jew in the spirit is completely different. And this is 
Again, what Paul's highlighting. So he says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand. Or in other words, he's just using this representation of circumcision and being uncircumcised as the defining aspect between Jew and Gentile. And he's making that distinction that is there, uh, we find in the Old Testament, it is a reality. Because the Jews and the Gentiles, as it relates to the Old Testament, is somewhat different, isn't it? Clearly, we find in the Old Testament that God has separated a people unto himself and he has made a covenant uh, uh, that begins with Abraham and with the seed that relates to his flesh, the physical seed, and that relates to um, Abraham, Isaac being the promise, and then Jacob and then the twelve patriarchs and then we have the, 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 the nation of Israel themselves. This is according to the flesh. And the seal and the sign were circumcision, was it not? And so this was the distinctive aspect that separated the Jew from the rest of the nations, from the Gentile world, which was uncircumcised for the most part. And so the Gentiles, in this sense, were not part of, at this point in time, were not part of God's purpose as it related to the nation of Israel itself. They were a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, separated and called by God. And they were privileged in that sense. But the Gentiles, we were, we were without Christ. See, that was the, it was the Jews themselves that were waiting for the promised Messiah. It was the Jews that understood, the, uh, um, as uh, Brother Sam pointed out this morning, about as it relates to in Genesis and to the promise that we have of the seed that would come and bruise the serpent's head. They understood, they had the, the whole purpose of God outlined for them. They knew that there was a Messiah that was to come. But to the Gentiles, they had no idea of anything relating to the purposes of God. Literally. And so the Gentiles were without Christ. In that sense, at that time you were without Christ in verse 12, he says. They had no idea of the plan and purposes of God. They had no title right to the messianic expectations that the Jews themselves had. They were, the Jews were waiting for the coming Messiah who was going to liberate them politically from the, 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 uh, the reign of, uh, and rule of Rome in that time and they were going to be liberated and they were going to take their place in the world as God's chosen people and have the Messiah come and to rule and to reign. And so that's how they saw it. But the Gentiles... Well, they were, they were unclean. Their pagan practices and their religious rituals and all that pertained to their false worship. Now, we know now that the Gentiles, prophetically in the Old Testament, were there. In God's ultimate plan, we see as we read the prophets, we can identify various scriptures where, where there's reference to the Gentiles and there's some, something that God has planned for the Gentiles themselves. You see this in Isaiah and other places in the scripture. But not at this point. Paul says in verse 12 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens, 
aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens, meaning non-participants. We were not participating in that promise of the Messiah at that point in time. We were, we were, we were aliens to the commonwealth of Israel as a people. And isn't it still true today? The, the, the Jews are a peculiar people. And there's the Gentile world and then there's the Jews. And the Jews and the Gentile, that has existed from, from these days until even the gospel itself that come forth. But Paul writes and he says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Strangers from the covenants of promise, the covenants that God had made, the promises that he had made to bring forth the Messiah, they were strangers to the covenant. They were not participants. It didn't relate at this point in time to them at all. And we see this outlined for us in the scriptures because when you read the Gospels, you've probably read where Jesus says, I have been sent to the lost house of Israel. And so his whole ministry is to his people, it's to the house of Israel. He sends them out to, and he says, go only to the, house, the, 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 the people of Israel to preach the gospel. And so we know when the Gentile woman comes and Jesus says, shall we take of the, of, of the crumbs that, uh, um, that fall from the, the table and give them to the dogs? The dogs representing the Gentile world and their worship and their pollution of, of, of uh, spiritual things and, and their corruption of, uh, of the worship of God. That's how, that was the view. But Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the first instance. But it's also interesting because Jesus again tells us in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says these words, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. See, Jesus is planting the seed in and amongst the Jews, that there are other sheep and those other sheep are not Mormons, okay? The Mormons love this scripture because they consider themselves the other sheep. No, no, no. The other sheep are the Gentiles, okay? And so this is what Jesus has in mind. Now notice what Jesus says there. He says there will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock. You see, this is the first instance that we begin to see again something of the purposes of God that will come into view right here where Paul is speaking. One shepherd and one flock. Not two flocks, not Jews and Gentiles, but one flock. And so we see these things being identified in verse 12. Alien, strangers... It says in verse 12, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. That's, what the, that's the position of the Gentiles, having no hope. And without God, without the knowledge of God, without an understanding of who God is, nor his plan or his purpose, utterly in the dark. That's the, that's the position of the Gentile. No share in the provisions of the covenants of God. Now look at verse 13. 
because here's the contrast. That's the position. Therefore, remember, that's where you were. But, and that's the sharp contrast, but now, now, now that you have believed, now that you are in Christ, listen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, we were once far off, but now we have been brought near in Christ Jesus. How? By the blood of Christ. The blood that was shed at Calvary. The blood that purchased our redemption. The blood that transformed and paved the way for our salvation as Gentiles. Can you say Amen. We were brought near, the Bible says in verse 13. We have been redeemed, hallelujah. Romans 11 speaks about the Gentiles. We have been grafted in one flock, as Jesus refers to it. But there are other metaphors as well. And so it's in light of this that we come to verse 14, where it says, For he himself is our peace. Now that's not talking about a personal peace as such. He's talking in the context of Jew and Gentile. That's what he said in the previous verses from 11 to 13 that we just identified. For he, Christ, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. Now see, it's very interesting what is being said here by Paul the Apostle and I think it's important that we understand that because he's saying that there was once a hostility and in the flesh there still is, but in Christ there's not. In Christ there, was, uh, there is no hostility between Jew and Gentile. We are now one in the Messiah. We are now one in Christ Jesus. And now he has, that's why he says he, he himself is our peace. That there's no longer a hostility between Jew and Gentile as there once was. And there are barriers that have been broken down. There are barriers that have been destroyed through Christ's death and resurrection and through the blood that was shed at Calvary, through the cross itself and these are identified in these particular verses that we are looking at and the first one we can see here is that he has destroyed the disunion between Jew and Gentile having made peace. He has destroyed that disunity that existed. That's one thing that he has accomplished between Jew and Gentile. Look at what it says in verse 14. He has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has destroyed the division that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. And there was, an, there was a, a, a wall of separation. If you were a Jew, you were here. If you were a Gentile, you were there. And they had no connection, no association, no mixture mixture between themselves because according, that's why it says here um, um, it talks about this issue of separation and division but then it talks about abolishing um, the enmity that is between the Jew and the Gentile look at verse 15, it says these words, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances 
as to create in himself a, uh, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And so in other words, the law of Moses that we have there in the Old Testament that instructed them how to conduct themselves, how to live, how to be holy and separate uh, from Gentiles and so forth, that wall has been broken down and abolished through his death. And so we see these things being highlighted through Paul the Apostle. And the last thing that is destroyed is the distinction, now listen to this, is the distinction between Jew and Gentile in Christ Jesus. This is very important to understand. Because it says in verse 15, he is so as to create in himself one new man, one flock, one shepherd, one new man from the two, Jew and Gentile, thus making peace. And this is exactly what Christ has accomplished through the cross. In Christ Jesus now, there is one shepherd, there is one flock, and there is one body, one faith, one baptism. And this is how we understand, this is the whole issue that relates to the church, and thus making peace. Look at verse 16. And that he might. Christ might reconcile them, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity that existed. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Amen. And this is, this, this is the Gospel. This is our position. This is how the Jew and Gentile related in Christ. And this is very significant for us to understand. That's why the Scripture says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. And, this, and that applies to the Jew and the Gentile having been baptised into Christ... And listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith. That's the levelling factor. Faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, how glorious is that? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free, male nor female, because in Christ Jesus our identification is somewhat different. And this is important for us to understand. And uh, Brother Sam uh, earlier made an emphasis and he used the word dispensation. And it is imperative that we understand the dispensation of the church because this is exactly the mystery that Paul will reveal in chapter 3 when we get to it and we'll see that this issue of the church is the dispensation that you and I are in now. And in Christ Jesus, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. 
between male and female. But let me say this. In the church, there's a misunderstanding of this and this text sometimes gets quoted out of context and it gets quoted in terms of the flesh. Okay, we're talking about in the spirit. We're talking about the dispensation of the church. Now, you must understand that in the flesh, the Jew is still the Jew. There is still Jew and Gentile. God still has a plan prophetically for the Jews as a nation, as a people. They have not been replaced by the church. In Christ, it's completely different if you are in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, then everything else remains as it is for now until the fulfilment of that which is still contained within the prophets and that which is to come. And so we must understand that or otherwise we'll say there's no male or female. If there's no Jew and Gentile, then there mustn't be male or female, right? I know, that's what they're trying to tell us now. I know, you know, we're all just saying, I'm a girl, I'm a boy, or whatever you want to be. No, there are male and there are female. That's a fact. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. That's a fact. And you cannot supersede and do away with the purposes of God as it relates to the Jew after the flesh in that which is to come in the return of Christ and everything else that it pertains to. So, let us bring our minds back, if I can, having just kind of moved from that. And again, we're considering this concept of sitting now we're, now we're considering it in this context as a Gentile in Christ. A Gentile who had no participation. A Gentile who had nothing to do in the original purpose that God had set aside for the Jew themselves. So that's why the Bible says that the, the, the gospel is to the Jew first, then the Gentile. But you see, now we, are, uh, we have become partakers of this. And now we are seated. We are in Christ and we are, Jew and Gentile in Christ are the same. We're equal. You see, remember the, Jew, the gospel Paul says in Romans 1 was to the Jew first, then to the Greek or representative of the Gentile. And this is how it worked. Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But after his death and resurrection, he commissioned the disciples to what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature because he had in mind other sheep. And so you have on the day of Pentecost the gospel being preached to the Jews. But you have the encounter that God has with, the, uh, with Peter uh, in Acts there. And um, Acts, it is Acts 10, is it? 10, yes it is. And in Acts 10 he's showing him, he gives him the vision three times he repeats it. It's about the Gentiles because they consider them unclean. I will not touch anything unclean. And God says, Peter, what I have called clean you must not call unclean. And so Peter goes and he brings the, first, the gospel to the first Gentile, Cornelius. And Gentiles are being grafted in. And Paul the Apostle who's converted on the road to Damascus, he becomes the Apostle to the Gentiles. This is what we're seeing here. 
Now we are seated in Christ. Look at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers, nor foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Thank God for that. No longer strangers. We are fellow citizens. We are, that word fellow citizens means a native of the same. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Having been, look at verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And isn't it interesting, the foundation, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, because the prophets in the Old Testament spoke even, even the, uh, the, the, the religious establishment understood that there was some kind of spiritual or prophetic significance with Gentiles. They didn't understand it, but they could just see glimpses of things and uh, it was something there. But you see, it was, it was all, the, whole, the whole gospel is contained within the Old Testament. That's how Paul it was revealed to him. That's how he came to understand it. And then um, uh, it was built on the, the prophets and the apostles and we've already just we touched upon the apostles before where Peter and Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. They became the foundation but Christ is the cornerstone. It's all built on Christ, in Christ. There's no other foundation that one can lay but Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone, the scripture says. And it's in light of this spiritual reality, amen, it's in light of this that we rejoice. And isn't it interesting that when we talk about the chief cornerstone, I just want to go back on a couple of scriptures because this was prophetically identified in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and the Prophets, and Jesus himself made reference to it. But listen to what it says. Let's go to Psalm 118, verse 22. The psalmist is writing here and he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvellous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You know when we sing that song, we're not talking about, oh, the sun's shining today. It's a beautiful day. That's not what the scripture's talking about. It is the day, amen, of Jesus Christ. The day in which he said it is finished. The day when he accomplished and fulfilled all on that day. And the stone which the builders ultimately rejected became the chief cornerstone, praise the Lord. This was the Lord's doing. And it's marvellous in our sight. This is the day God made. And we rejoice and be glad in it because this is the work of God. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation and that foundation is Christ. Spoken of by the prophet, whoever believes will not act hastily, will not be put to shame as Paul would quote 
in Romans. Jesus even makes reference to this himself as he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 21 and in verse 42. He's having this discussion and he's giving them a parable about the vine dressers in reference to them. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures as he concludes it? He says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In other words, you are rejecting me and I am the chief cornerstone. And he says, this was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Verse 43, Matthew 21, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, the Gentiles. He's telling them straight. That's why they wanted to kill him. He, you're the chief cornerstone. We, the builders, the rejected. See, they were supposed to identify the Messiah. They were supposed to know him when he came. And yet they rejected him. He was despised and rejected but he's the chief cornerstone laid by God and we are being built on that foundation. Praise the Lord. You see, there's an individual and there's a corporate aspect to this. Look at verse 21. It says, In whom the whole building, being Christ is the foundation, in whom the whole building, the whole structure is being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, the church, which is what he's building, Jesus said, I will build my church. And this church, his body, his bride, he will present faultless and blameless at the day of his coming. And it is in this context that me, you and I, we are individually being fitted together in the corporate setting as the church of Jesus Christ and that church is international that church is local that church is individual and we are all part of that, we are being fitted together we are living stones we have been put into Christ and we the Bible says with Christ being the foundation, the whole building the church, the whole structure itself is being fitted together and we, are, we have been put into the body, born into Christ. And then it says in verse 21, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And the scripture again talks in, this, in, the, in, the, in the individual and in the corporate sense of the temple. We are the temple of God. Don't you know the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then, that, and then we find that Paul is talking about the church being the temple and if anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. 1 Corinthians 3. And so you have these aspects that are there in the scripture. And so the, the, te- the temple must be holy. This individual temple must be holy. This corporate temple that we, as we sit, must be holy. A little leaven leavens the lump. That's why we have to acknowledge these things and we are being built together as a holy temple. Now listen to verse 22. For this purpose, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the 
spirit. See, it's all spiritual, church. In the spirit, we are a dwelling place of God. God dwells amongst us. He dwells in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is phenomenal. Are you, uh, is this like sinking into our head? Because this, is, this, this truth is profound. But this is the gospel. This is the inheritance. We are seated with Christ. And when you begin to identify these truths, it, is, it, it blows your mind. It really does. Why? Because we don't deserve one bit of it. We are wretched, miserable sinners. We were dead in our sin. We were alienated from the life of God. We were strangers to the covenant. We were so far deep in sin and rebellion and we hated God. And yet God, who is rich in mercy, he saved us and he put us into the church. Amen. And he made us blameless and holy in his sight and we have been made saints. And this is our position in Christ and this is the inheritance and this is our relationship to Christ and to the Jew and to one another in Christ Jesus. And it is glorious. It is glorious. You see, it grows into a holy temple. And we can talk about the issues of holiness, but Paul will talk about that later when he begins to emphasise our walk with Christ. But he also says there's a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You know, the Bible, is it possible to to, uh, grieve the Spirit? Yes, Ephesians. Is it possible to quench the Spirit? Yes. That's why we'll find later in Ephesians that we are exhorted to be filled with the Spirit because it's very easily to live contrary. The way we conduct ourselves can, and that's what Paul will show us later, the way we conduct ourselves can affect the the indwelling, the presence of God amongst us. That's how serious it is. And so it's a holy temple. Positional, yes, but it has to be practical too. You can't disconnect the two. They're closely associated and, uh, and, and that we must walk in a manner that is worthy to God, that pleases God. And for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, this is our wealth in Christ Jesus. It's something to get so excited about and to shout amen about and I pray that the Lord has just deposited something in your spirit and maybe you've seen something you haven't seen before. Maybe the Spirit of God has just opened your understanding. And I would say this to us, let us sit in Christ, seated in heavenly places. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word of God that has come to us, Lord. We thank you for the riches that we have in Christ. Oh, Lord, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Oh, God, there's just so much here, Lord. Continue to open our understanding, to continue, Lord, to minister to individuals, continue to establish our hearts in the grace of God. For your word says it's good for the heart to be established in grace. And Lord, this is what we're seeking to do this morning as we consider these things. I ask your blessing upon your people in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.